Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello to all my lovely wine lovers. Welcome back to another episode. Now I have another master of wine on the podcast, Siobhan Turner. Now she recently just passed her master of wine. So of course, we're going to talk about her journey and her challenges. What's awesome about this episode is she's going to really give you a bit of advice on how to handle blind tasting as that was one of her biggest challenges so really the way she goes about it how she breaks down the grape variety and of course the important theory behind it so you're going to learn a little bit more in detail about blind tasting and then we're going to talk about counterfeits now when it comes to wine fraud it is a very sad fact that there are thousands and thousands of bottles out there that are fakes. And Siobhan Turner certainly knows better than the majority as she has been working within the world of wine fraud and identifying these bottles and fighting the good fight for several years. In fact, she worked on Rudy Kuniawan's wine fraud trial, reviewing the physical evidence. And for any of you who don't know who Rudy Kuniawan is, well... He is most certainly the biggest wine fraudster of the world to our knowledge. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about him and the story that got him quite rightly thrown behind bars, check out the documentary on Netflix called Sour Grapes. It will certainly open up your eyes to the darker and more sinister part of our wine industry. Now, apparently they think 10,000 bottles of Ruby Kuniawan's fakes are still out there, most likely in somebody's cellar after them spending thousands on it, which just is a really sad, devastating thought. So to keep the mood slightly lighter, let's go over to the chat with Siobhan now. Um, Siobhan, thank you so much for making some time and coming to talk to me about your wine journey and all of your master of wine experiences. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. So I'm going to start with a very, very standard, kind of boring, but it could be interesting depending on what you say. The question (laughs) is, how did you get into wine? I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of wine or what made it I'm not going to say I was able to discern necessarily good from excellent, Mm -hmm. but certainly good from bad at a young age. It was just something that we had on the table and when I was probably 14 or 15, I would get a little sip and we'd talk a little bit about, you know, neither of my parents are particularly wine snobs it was just there and it Mm -hmm. was something my dad had a little bit of interest in and and it was always something that I had a bit of interest in and being um Canadian I Mm -hmm. had to you know pay for my university (laughs) so I funded that and uh, the lifestyle I wanted by waiting tables and I learned Mm. more that way as well okay the same as me in fact it took me years to earn as much before I after having who gone into 
being a, a chartered accountant during my chartered accountancy mm -hmm. training. It wasn't until I was after after a year qualified that I was earning as much as I was earn, working about 20 hours a week in a bar in Montreal. Oh my God. Do you know what? You're talking about tips and stuff, aren't you, as well? Oh yeah. Oh, I miss those days. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I still think there are times, I mean, we're talking like I've stopped being a waitress maybe 10 years ago. And I still think 10 years ago, there were times when I was making more money then than I am now. And I think, well, oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> at least I have a career that I'm progressing in now. Oh, God. Yeah. So, um, oh, thanks everyone for the tips. We appreciate it. Now, during that time, were you working in a bar rather than as a waitress? I was working I was working as a waitress in a, in a cocktail, cocktail bar. bar. Oh, that sounds rather cliche. Love that. Everyone listening, they're singing it right now. <laughs> so were you exposed to even more wine, even though it was cocktails a lot of the time? Were you drinking wine? I needed to know it. I needed to know something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it was a, a restaurant and cocktail bar and... Yeah. Yes, I needed to know what was in a you know Manhattan or a mm -hmm. daiquiri, but I also needed to be able to know if someone wanted a Chablis, that if we didn't have Chablis, it was sensible to offer them another Chardonnay rather mm -hmm. than a Merlot. Okay. So it got your interest up, certainly. So now yeah. you're a chartered accountant. When did mm. you then go across to being executive director of the Institute <laughs> of Master of Wine? How did that happen? I'd left my previous job having really, I think, completely burnt out working yeah. in investor relations. And I was looking for another similar job mm. and had a company that was very interested in me that I won't name, but a very good, <laughs> a very reputable company. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they did offer me the job. Um, but as I was, I was still looking, I wasn't convinced that this was the one for me, largely mm -hmm. location. Um, and I was, this was the days when job adverts were still in the, in the Sunday papers? Times. Yeah. <laughs> and I literally folded up the Sunday Times newspaper, mm -hmm. having decided that I wasn't going to apply for this job I'd been staring at. Okay. Turned it over and there was this tiny, and I mean, probably business card sized ad, uh -huh. quite badly worded, <laughs> that caught my eye. And I uh -huh. thought... Oh, well, that sounds like fun. Uh -huh. And I had already done the first of the WSET courses and, mm -hmm. sorry, so what is now level two, I think at the time was introductory. Okay. Um, and had signed up for what was an advanced and I think is now level, level three. three. Yeah. And was about to start that in a couple of weeks time. And I thought, oh, and... I applied for it, or and the salary was slightly less than half of what I'd been offered by this other company. Ooh. And Oops. I thought about it a little bit more. Yeah. And talked them up to half, because that mm -hmm. felt important. <laughs> a little bit. And, um, and we went from there. So I started in March, beginning of March 2004. Wow. Okay. And what were you doing as... What does an executive director of the Institute of Master Wines do? I used to say that I did everything from strategic direction to the washing up. 
And that's actually true. <laughs> so you make uh, a damn good cup of tea, right? Uh, I'm not so good at tea, coffee, oh, yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So we had a, an education program and mm. I, I had obviously a team of people working with me who were over, overseeing this. But there, there were sort of membership relations, external relations, the education and the exam is how I would really divide it up. Mm. Plus you know, what what I would term regulatory things, so legal and, and financial compliance. Okay. Um, and, and it was all of that. It was trying to raise the profile of the Institute, trying to um, raise the or, or solidify the financial platform it mm-hmm. operated on, bring a, a greater level of professionalism to the Institute and really try and I think bring it into the 21st century (laughs) in terms of what it stood for and how it represented the wine world at large and Mm -hmm. and the professional wine world. And I think, you know, we made a huge, huge leap in my nine years there. By the time I left, it was absolutely time for me to go and for someone else to come on and take it, Mm -hmm. you know, still further. But I think it... I'm very, very proud of what, what I did there. Now, you said part of that was uh, helping with, I assume, the organizing and the planning of the exams. So you're there seeing all of these people doing their Master <laughs> of Wine exams, right? <laughs> Exhausted, stressed, probably non-brushed hair, who knows? Um, did that... Is that what inspired you to do your own Master of Wine? Like, how did that happen? It was more meeting the people who had become masters of wine who are collectively a hugely inspiring group of people Mm. and I'm leaving myself out of this these are the people I met when I was there I I just found them so committed so broadly intelligent Mm. um so aware of what was going on and so interesting and I thought, you know, I'd love to be able to, you know, be part of this group. And maybe mm. it was, you know, slightly arrogant on my part to think I could. Well, you passed. I did in the end, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would take the arrogance straight out. No. So, so with this inspiration, you started your journey. Was it harder mm than you ever imagined or actually working within the institute were you fully prepared I don't know if anyone's fully prepared um (laughs) I went into it with an advantage that I think some people do not have which is that I knew it was bloody hard work (laughs) um and that it wasn't going to be achieved by doing you know a half a job on it Mm. there was something I always said to the the students when I was speaking to them on their first course day which is that this isn't you're not going to find the time to do this it's not you know hidden as a mysterious present under the Christmas tree or shoved in the back (laughs) of the closet with your summer shoes it's it's got to be carved out and it's sometimes got to be carved out of some quite painful parts of your life Mm. and and that's really important that you recognize that. So I did go in 
knowing this. And I think that is, is really important. Um, and I also went in knowing that, you know, most people don't pass everything first time. Yeah. So it wasn't, uh, although it, obviously, you know, I did pass my theory first time. Congratulations. And I, I th <laughs> thank you. I think knowing myself and knowing my strengths, mm -hmm. I probably would have been gutted if I'd not managed to do okay. that. Yeah. Um, the tasting was, was a struggle for me and I needed to really, you know, challenge myself and find different ways of working and doing things. Mm. And that was, you know, a, a valuable lesson, but it was also that I knew this is what I needed to do. Yeah. So with your struggles with the blind tasting, it, mm. for anybody listening, as an example, who really thinks, oh God, I really am, I can't understand the difference between this great variety and that, and I'm I'm struggling as well, my WSETs, for instance. <laughs> what, what did you do, apart from taste, 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 taste? Well, someone said to me that there's a limit to the usefulness of blind tasting, and they're absolutely right. Okay. Um, you need to be able to do it. It's yeah. important. But it's almost like if you're training for a marathon, not everything you do is a race. You mm -hmm. need to, uh, I'm, lest you think otherwise, I'm not a marathon runner, um, <laughs> but my husband is. Okay. And he would have a training program and he might race, you know, once every couple of weeks, he might go race park run as a mm -hmm. 5K. And he'd do a few 10Ks and he'd do a half marathon race. And mm -hmm. occasionally he'd do a 20 mile race. But no, those were probably once every three or four weeks. And his rest of his training was very different. So sometimes it would be a long, slow run. And sometimes mm -hmm. it would be little bursts. And I realized that I needed to take the same approach okay. and a friend of mine who actually used to be the um, program officer at the institute a man called Peter Chismedia and he um, he said to me you've they he was speaking about the students and he said the ones who succeed are the ones who look at it as marathon training and not sprint oh how funny exactly what you'd already kind of yeah. started setting out in your brain right yeah and so I realized I needed to change the way I was approaching it okay. and I still did my 12 wine blind tastings but I did actually an awful lot more working on the theory side so going back over all my tastings I have mm -hmm notebooks and notebooks and notebooks but going back over those and then coming down with a a list of what might define chardonnay for me okay and what the range of alcohol i would expect in chardonnay is what the range of acid um what winemaking characteristics might i find if i'm looking at chardonnay um mm. what colors would I think of if I'm looking at Chardonnay? Uh, what aromatic notes would I think of if I'm looking at Chardonnay? And then where in the world would I find this? And, and what are the ranges that I'm looking at? So if I'm looking at a Chablis, and yes, the world is changing, but generally I'm probably looking at alcohol of around 12 and a half to 13%. Mm -hmm. So if I'm tasting a wine and it's 14 and a half percent. It's not there. <laughs> it's not a Chablis. Yeah. Um, and really almost treating it like a theory exam. Yeah. 
with that practical component. And I, I said earlier that for me, theory was a strong point. So it took a while. But once I realized this is what I needed to do, I got there. Okay, no, but that's so interesting. Because basically, for anyone listening, yes, keep tasting wines. But ultimately, if you spend so long just going, oh, okay, can I smell strawberries? Oh, you know, is this, yeah. has this got high acidity? It's, it's irrelevant if you don't actually genuinely know the difference between yes, a Cabernet Sauvignon exactly. and a yeah. Cabernet Franc for instance yeah yeah okay precisely there we go everyone get to the books <laughs> <laughs> well I think it's got to be based on your own tasting knowledge but then you've got to sit and analyze it so that you and, and different people will have different ways mm-hmm. of doing it but I had these notebooks that have are you getting them know, now everything written down in them I am I can hear out. you yeah. off you go <laughs> You said there were so many notebooks. How many do you have to carry back? I have three. I have one for, well, I distilled it down to three. So I have my tasting notebooks, which is just, you know, where I would make notes Mm -hmm. of every wine I tasted. Mm -hmm. And then I would distill it down into um, usually two pages. Okay. So I'm looking at the first one for me and it's Pinot Noir. Okay. And so I've got color. Pale to medium dark, strawberry to medium cherry, and then the nose, fresh berries, raspberry, black cherry, floral, perfume, cream, lifted, pointing to stems, whole berries, oak spice, pointing to vanilla and clove. And then details of the palette, where it's found, which regions, what criteria are those regions. And then I would write and I would work on this. So it only went into my book when I thought it was perfect. But I would write what I consider to be a perfect note. Wow, okay. Explaining why wine X was Pinot Noir. Okay. Or wines X, Y, and Z were Pinot Noir. Gosh, we all need to come over to your house and sit down and have... Are you running any classes on tasting? <laughs> that might be an idea. I don't know. Just, just, just planting that seed. Well, it was two masters of wine who really got me thinking this analytically okay. about it. Um, Beverly Blanning and Marina Guyan mm-hmm. ran some classes. And, and it was... A bit of an eye opener for me, and it really changed the way I approached my tasting, and for the better. Very, very interesting. So once you got over that, you were able to move forward. But was that your biggest challenge? Do you think then the tasting aspect? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. What was the best part of doing the Master of Wines? Um, it was the camaraderie with my fellow travelers mm. on the journey. Mm. Um, it was walking into a room in Roost in Austria and looking around me and thinking, these people are going to be with me in very, very intimate ways. Mm. You know, you put yourself out there and you are very often wrong, especially at the beginning. Yeah. And you have to be willing to be vulnerable, very vulnerable. Mm. Um, And getting to know them and making some lifelong friends that way. Yeah. And, And the... So those are my fellow students, but also the MWs who were so generous with their time and their expertise and their joy when something good happened. (laughs) Knowing how hard it is to do, of course. I think that's the point. I think for me, the thing that inspires me talking with Master of Wines and just talking about your journey is it, it something that is that hard. It's like, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And it does. It's almost like you literally get knocked down, knocked down. You are literally at rock bottom, as you said. Like, you still need to be studying and taking exams in times that perhaps something else is going on in life that really 
either deserves your yeah. attention or perhaps actually is taking away your attention and your yeah. focus and it's not even it's not even about learning about wine that seems to be just one aspect it's learning about yourself <laughs> yes. as a human being and the internal fire and the internal strength and those friends I truly can understand from talking with so many master ones is that they are probably the only people that really even your partner they're incredible without your partner you perhaps would never have succeeded oh, he was yes yeah <laughs> patient he was just unbelievable <laughs> one day i found him in our cellar mm. and he was drunk cataloging no. <laughs> no 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 he was cataloging all the wines in our cellar and oh. he then sent the spreadsheet over to a, a very very close friend of mine who's mm. a master of wine who lives in the states I call her my sister from another mother. Um, <laughs> and he sent it to Sherry and he's like, I want to put it together tasting packs for Siobhan. What do I do? And you oh. Think, oh my God. To actually do that mm. is He's a keeper. Just so yeah, oh he really is. <laughs> and he stayed with you through the whole Master of Wine, so he's definitely a keeper anyway. Oh well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that goes without saying. Oh, do you know, it's it is, it's beautiful, isn't it? Okay, let's take you to that incredible beautiful moment when you pass which I would like to point out is only recently isn't it so <laughs> what day did you find out you passed the master of wine uh the 27th of August wow yeah at 8.03 a.m 8.03 and that is it's like a, the birth of a child you never forget right well I'd said they'd asked when um when they could call. Mm -hmm. And we were actually up in Scotland and we were staying in a hotel in my husband's family village okay. that we were just there for two nights, but it's on, um, on the edge of a hill. And the village itself has like really, really, really limited cell phone service. If you happen to be, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, standing in the right place on a sunny day mm -hmm. with a, a, a benign wind. <laughs> so I knew that I needed to get up high and there was no cell phone service in the hotel at all or, or, or very, very little. So I, I went up, um, I went up the, the hill that this was on the side of this hotel was on the side of and the cloud was down and later on it was an absolutely glorious day but the, the cloud was firmly down mm -hmm. so I climbed up this hill and I'm quite you know warmly dressed but I get to the top of the hill and I stand there at uh, at seven o'clock in the morning and it's chilly and damp and I'm sort of stomping around and <laughs> getting colder and colder uh -huh. and colder and at eight o'clock or just before eight I think they're not and I knew another friend of mine was expecting a call at eight mm -hmm. and I thought oh god they're going to be on the phone with her now and I just can't do this oh. I'm gonna to have to go down and see if I can find another place in the village because I just can't do this and I I started to go down and the phone rang and it was Adrian Garforth <laughs> mm -hmm. and I had to scramble back up very quickly because he was <laughs> He was very scratchy indeed, uh -huh. but it was good news. And you were by yourself in that moment? I was by myself, oh, yeah. Okay. It, it's, um, it, my father-in-law's ashes are actually scattered on the top of the hill, so he was the first person oh, to find out. Okay, beautiful. So you weren't alone. And how no. does it, how did it feel? Um, it was, I'm just, sorry, I'm, I'm almost tearing up at the <laughs> memory of it. It was, um, it was just this yes. huge 
relief mm. that my faith in myself hadn't been misplaced, yeah. that mm. I'd actually managed to do this. Beautiful. I think relief was very definitely the the primary emotion. And then sort of a, a, a burgeoning joy yeah. that is, is very, both are still there. Um, the joy is, is coming out a little bit more. I, I don't think it's ever going to settle down. <laughs> um, every once in a while, I got the... So Riedel are one of the supporters of the Institute mm-hmm. and they send all the new MWs um, a, a collection of wine glasses. Okay. And I knew this because several of my friends who'd passed... Some had started long before I'd been on the journey, but um, they'd they'd got these and they'd taken pictures of themselves with these piles of wine, <laughs> uh, wine glasses. Yeah. And there were literally moments when it's like, I have to keep going because I have to get those glasses. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was your trophy. Yeah. Your wine glass trophy. And I know that sounds incredibly superficial, but sometimes you have to seize on what's motivating mm-hmm. you at that moment. <laughs> I fully understand. Oh, that's brilliant. Have they arrived? They've arrived oh, and <laughs> I've not found space for them all yet. Oh, so no. there are um, 18 glasses in boxes uh-huh. sitting on top of a, a, a sort of cabinet um, <laughs> with nowhere to go just yet. But I can see them when I'm sitting at my dining table and I Probably once a day, I sort of look at them and go to my husband. Look at my glasses. And point to them. I'm a master of wine, you know. <laughs> and he's like, I know. I was there with yeah, you the whole way through. <laughs> so you should. Now, what did you celebrate with? What drink? What did you crack open? Well, I'd packed a bottle of champagne just in case. Mm-hmm. But I'd texted my husband on my way back down this hill. Oh, I love that. I should say it took me an hour to walk up the hill. Oh, so it's gosh. not a small hill. Um, so I, it took me a bit less time to walk yeah, down. Yeah, much quicker. Um, You're probably running and sliding like with joy. Like, yeah. Oh. And when I got back down, there was a bottle of Bollinger RD 2004. Oh, that's all right. That's all right, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. that was pretty good. Very nice. Beautiful. So, and the um, the hotel was just brilliant. Oh. They they let us serve it. And um, it's, it's a wonderful place it really is oh. and uh, the dark Lairg in Ballater if anyone's interested there we go so when you pass your master but, wine they'll look after you there you go <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> and they've got a lovely wine list oh beautiful so now let's go on to another subject which you did after you finished working at the Institute of Master of Wines you started yeah. working with uh, Maureen Downey who yes. is all about wine fraud and authentication are you still working with her today Yes, I am. So she's one of my major clients. Fantastic. So I love this subject because I don't even know where to start. And I think (laughs) for for many people, unless they have a seller and they've been collecting for many years, the average wine consumer probably found out about counterfeits by watching the documentary on Netflix called Sour Grapes, which was all about Rudy Kurniwan and his shocking but pretty excellent counterfeit so (laughs) it's disgusting to our industry but the way he was able to do it is um is remarkable yes i'd I'd say actually his counterfeits per se Mm. are not if if you're looking at the let's call it artistry of them for example um they weren't that good ah, okay. what was good was his con artistry with people and the way he's yes. okay okay yes. interesting so as a 
I suppose, can I call you a specialist now in authentication? Yes, so. You've done, yeah. yeah. As a specialist then in being able to identify counterfeits, you're saying that his bottles were not actually that good. So, so why? What are you looking for? What is it that, how do you find a one? You're looking for a number of things. Okay. Um, obviously, you're wanting something that's, if, if you are being a counterfeiter, mm-hmm. you want something that is going to resemble the original as closely as possible. And there are some people, particularly some we think are operating out of northern Italy at the moment, who ah. are making bottles that are very, very good counterfeits indeed. Mm. They're still obvious, but they're harder to spot. What people are doing, there are two principal ways of counterfeiting wine. The first is to start from the bottom up mm-hmm. and to, you know, get a bottle, a label, you know, create, you're probably not going to blow your own bottle, but you're going to um, start with a bottle, uh, create a label um, and really put something together that is almost from scratch. And the other way, and this one is is somewhat harder, is to start with a legitimate bottle and reuse the constituent parts. Okay. So, which is one of the reasons that we, you know, we're always keen for people to destroy or somehow deface labels, Mm. um, smash the bottles. If you look on eBay at the moment, for example, I am pretty much 100% certain that you'll be able to find uh, many of the constituent parts of a wine bottle that would retail if it were sold for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of pounds ah, see that and that and you know exactly why it's there right so if there's Absolutely. a premium yeah. bottle of wine and they're saying this is the empty bottle from this very expensive wine yes these, there's only precisely. one reason why somebody would buy well yeah i know no no maybe somebody wants to put candles in it actually i'm just <laughs> <laughs> some people do like collecting and putting candles in it but i would say 99 percent of people yes um there's a, a yeah. specific reason why they're buying that that's very frustrating yeah. okay yeah it is. Yeah. And then if they buy literally the bottle of wine that's empty, presumably though then they just need to put some juice into it and put a cork in it and they can literally resell it, which is very scary. And a capsule, yeah. Yeah, it is. The the bottle itself is perfect. That The bottle, it's not a counterfeit. It's the real bottle. No, and that's why you need to look at all the elements of a bottle. Okay, so you actually, so you would be then very much focusing on the top presumably the in that case i mean if i'm looking at a bottle i look at the whole thing okay um so does you know is it the right label is it the right bottle is it the right period um, yeah because vintages as well like sometimes there's been yeah. like mutual rothschild and it'll be a specific vintage but they didn't actually make that vintage and somebody hasn't actually yeah. done the research when doing their counterfeit right yeah exactly or you know they call something Rothschild and it's before the Rothschilds bought that mm, mm-hmm, okay so so I mean we we've got a, a bottle of wine in front of us for example and if I, I know we've both taken our corks out um, but if you look at the the capsule mm-hmm. um, it's a 
fairly generic brown capsule, except when you look at the top of it and you can see that pelican on top. Okay. And it's knowing that. Uh, the pelican is because, uh, now my German is um, sketchy, but <laughs> the von Mandel family is, I that is their family crest. Okay. And, and I believe Mandel might mean pelican in German. Don't quote me mm. on that one. So the bottle of wine that we have, which obviously we'll be tasting in a little bit, they, they've put that on the cork and probably a counterfeiter would you know, miss that detail and just use a plain Possibly, cork yeah. as an example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're basically looking, obviously, for any potential missed details, something quite small. Missed details or um, things that are incorrect. So is the ink the wrong colour? Is it the wrong... Mm type of printing are there elements of what i call the anti-fraud that are missing the anti-fraud so is there invisible ink that i'm expecting but not seeing ah okay because i is that where things are going because i know that especially with the top bordeaux houses and some of the top wines there's now i guess like little things you can scan so it's like traceability and tracking and they are trying to put certain things on the bottles so that actually you can really follow where the wine's going right yes exactly is that helping presumably having these these trails are we winning are we winning the war against (laughs) Um, wine counterfeits i think there is certainly some progress being made um it's always a race The trick Mm -hmm. is that Maureen says you don't need to be the fastest zebra in the herd. You just need not to be the slowest one. (laughs) And that's a good analogy. Um, You want people to be trying to counterfeit someone else. If your wine is, is one of the, you know, really top prestige wines in the world, they're mm-hmm. definitely going to be trying to counterfeit you. But you yeah. want to make it harder for them. Yeah. And there'll be things that everyone knows about, things that some people know about, things that just a few people know, and things that actually only you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's being able to prove that this is fake and being able to, to trace that back. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think... Yeah. I mean, the producers are doing as much as they can in as many ways as they can. They are looking for help from other sources. So they want distributors, for example, to start tracking where they are selling their wines. Mm. Um, They they want um, to keep much more control over where things are going. So if you look, for example, at a wine that I don't think I have ever seen counterfeited, um, which doesn't mean it can't happen and it's not being, but I've never seen it. Um, but Harlan Estate. Ah, okay. No, um, but they it, use right? a, they are very, very, very strict on their distribution. They also use a large number of layers of anti-fraud um Mm. but it's the distribution really and if they see something that appears on the open market then they will try and find out where that's come from and 
Mm. I suspect that the person whose allocation that was uh, no longer gets that allocation. Ah, so they, I mean, yeah, they are really right from the beginning, keeping on top of it. Yeah. Okay. So hopefully that might inspire other wineries to do the same. Cause that does sound like they're, if you're saying you're not even aware of that ever being counterfeited and they're taking such controlled measures, it seems to be working. Yeah. Yeah. What would you, what advice would you give for somebody who is starting their cellar collection and they're purchasing wine and maybe they're going to auctions or wherever they're getting their wines from, what should they do to ensure I don't know if the word insure is correct because can you but you know what would they what could would you advise them to try their best to make sure that their bottle they're getting and putting away in their cellar is genuine I think the best thing I would say is to find a reputable wine merchant Mm. and buy from them and build up with their advice Um, if someone is starting a wine collection it is likely that you know if they're starting from scratch they're going to want wines to drink within the next you know 12 months the next 5 years the next 10 years the next 20 years mm-hmm. and you need to think about that in terms of what you're buying but you also need to think that your tastes may change and people's tastes usually do change so yeah we see a lot of our american clients in particular will start off buying a lot of Napa Cabernet and Mm. what we will do is then sort of gradually introduce them to Bordeaux (laughs) and then once we've got them on Bordeaux then we might start talking to them about you know Burgundy yeah 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 but if I were buying for them I would need to be buying those Bordeaux now for them to drink in 10-15 years time um, and it's it's understanding that what you want now may not be what you want and what you like in in ten years time. Yeah. Um, sure. But so that's I suppose that's not answering the authentication question. It's finding someone <laughs> who is trusted. Um, yeah. Yeah. It and really working with them because that doesn't mean they can't make a mistake. But it does mean that they will own up to their mistakes and put them right. Yeah. And that they are taking actions to minimize making those mistakes. Yeah, that makes sense. And presumably as well, you can take your wines to go and get checked by oh, yes. the likes yes, of yourself, absolutely. for instance. But that's that's after the fact. It's yeah, it's much it. cheaper not to buy them in the first place <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than to, you know, have to pay me to come and look at your wines and give you the bad news. Okay, uh, but yeah, yes, yeah. if if you have a concern, um, by all means it, it is a wise idea to um, do that. And and I have a a client who buys not infrequently at auction, but he's very aware of the risk he's taking in doing that. Hmm. And he will call me in if he gets something that he's a little bit concerned about. Um, and he's got a good nose. He's never called me in for something that's been real yet. Uh, oh god poor guy though that means that he's he's counterfeit after counterfeit well no i think he's i think the the other things he buys are good he just doesn't call me in for them <laughs> yeah he's too busy drinking yeah. them oh dear me okay well, there we go now we know go to somebody reputable yeah but if you do suspect then yes you know get someone who can 
who's a trained authenticator. And the one thing I would say is that it's just as easy, in fact, it's easier to fake a certificate of authenticity than it is to fake a bottle. So mm. those should be regarded with extreme suspicion. Okay. Always be suspicious. Yeah. Done. <laughs> Now, if you want to know the wineries that are the most counterfeited in the world, apparently, it is a fight between DRC, so that's Domaine Romani Conti from Burgundy, and Petrus, which is from Pomerol and the right bank of Bordeaux. Now, I always used to think it was these super premium wines, these cult wines like Lafitte Rothschild and Penfold's Grange that were the only kind of wines being counterfeited. But you know, it turns out that's not the case. Even in the UK, in a very small corner shop in Hastings earlier this year, apparently they were done for having some counterfeit bottles of, wait for it, Blossom Hill White Zinfandel. This is one of the most well-known wines in the world and costs about five pound on a shop shelf. Thankfully, this is not common practice, but it is thought that 20% of all the wine on the global market is fake. But don't let that put you off in terms of buying wine, cellaring it and aging it because there's just nothing better than holding back a beautiful bottle of wine that means something to you and then cracking it open on that special occasion. Just pick a trustworthy retailer or seller. And on the beauty of an aged and special bottle, I shall end with a quote by Mireille Guiliano and she is a French author who says, The memory of some bottles can stay with you for life. While the wine doesn't have to be old and rare, a great old bottle can be like a time capsule, capturing in its flavours and aromas the time and place of its creation. Now, talking of time and place, next week will be part two with Siobhan Turner. And you may have picked up a hint of an accent. Well, she is Canadian. And so we are going to be talking about British Columbia and specifically Cabernet Franc. So make sure you tune in next week. Thank you as ever for listening to this episode. Leave me a review if you can, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. There is a comment section. Like the podcast, do share it with all your wine loving friends. You're all amazing. So go out and be great. And until next week, cheers to you. Bye.